Good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here with you this morning, and I appreciate so much Casey giving me the opportunity to preach. And some of you know that there was a scheduled opportunity back at the beginning of the summer, which I was not able to uh, make at the time. So he was very gracious in allowing me the second opportunity to be here. Before we go any further, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for giving us this opportunity to worship you, to set aside the normal activities of our week, to think about nothing else, hopefully, except you, your grace and your mercy, to focus on your love for us. And I pray that as we try to understand this passage here in the book of Mark, that your Holy Spirit would work in all of our lives, helping us not only understand what it is that you're speaking here, but helping us understand how to apply it, how to live it out. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Casey mentioned, uh, the book that is back in the foyer was a result of trying to better understand the culture in which I function in Washington, D.C., state capitals and international capitals. And as I was attempting to try to uh, customize the gospel to that particular audience, the content of that book uh, developed as Bible studies. And so uh, you're welcome to a copy if you would like, and at the same time it may not be what you would enjoy. But this particular passage is foundational to what was written there. And there was an opportunity when I had finished the manuscript to sit down with a member of Congress and uh, to just ask him, well, if you don't mind, just read the manuscript and give me your your thoughts. And as you'll note on the cover of the book, you know, it's uh, love and power, the gospel, you know, for those basically who are self-centered. And, you know, it's, it's, it's for those who are very much narcissistic, right? And, uh, and I was a little bit concerned when this member of Congress was reading the book, and we, uh, he gave me the opportunity to meet with him for really a couple of hours. We were outside the chambers uh, there in the Capitol, and uh, he looks at just one passage of the book, this one section, and he says, Chuck, you know, don't you think this is really snarky, what you're saying here? Basically what he was saying, you know, I know that this is written for uh, for my types, and that it's about narcissism. But I'm noticing this one section here. It seems like you're reflecting a fairly narcissistic mindset. So I always have to be careful whenever I come to this passage in John Ch- or in, my, in Mark chapter 10 that I'm I'm speaking to myself just as much as to anybody else. So I want you to know that up front. It is amazing to me when I think about the Gospels how customized. God is in regards to speaking to his people, right? You know what a textbook is like, and you've read many of them, and you've studied them, and you've used them, and you've benefited from them. So have I. But the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is very much oriented towards real people in real time and real places. And it's a beautiful way in which God has chosen to communicate to us. Because as we read, whether it be from the pages of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all through the the New Testament to the book of Revelation, we are being reminded that God has spoken to his people in time, real time, real places, and under real circumstances. 
Sometimes he will customize his words to those who are leaders, like the Sadducees and Pharisees. And they, those words seem kind of harsh. Other times, he's speaking to a Mary or a Martha, right? Or, or a Peter, or a doubting Thomas. And other times, through the epistles, for example, he speaks specifically to children and the relationship that they are to have with their parents, or parents, and the relationship they're to have with their children, or husbands and wives. And the list goes on and on how God will customize his word to specific people under specific circumstances at a specific time. And this passage here before us in regards to what he is writing, what uh, we find here in terms of Christ's interaction with this rich young ruler is a very important passage for us to understand, not necessarily because we'll walk away saying, oh, you know, I can identify with that man because I have that kind of wealth. Although, let me say up front, I don't know everyone here, but I, well, let me put it this way. In terms of the world, if you walk the streets of Manila or Port-au-Prince or New Delhi in India or any other places or the inner city of Baltimore, I can assure you that every one of us here would be under the category in terms of the world at large as very, very wealthy, very, very privileged. We, in many ways, are much like this rich young ruler that we've read about here this morning. It is interesting to me to note that in this passage that we understand it's not a parable. And yet, we're not given his name. Why? Right? Other places in the, in the scriptures, as Jesus is interacting with these people, we are given names. It may be Mary, Martha, it may be Lazarus, it may it could be any other people, right? You, you, there's a list of, of proper names, so to speak, that we might know exactly what the content of that passage is speaking about. You're just familiar with it because of your education, but you don't have a first or last name of this man. So we refer to him as the rich young ruler. I wonder, in some ways, if he's not a picture of the older brother that Jesus speaks about in a parable. He would have some of those same kinds of characteristics, I think. But it's important for us this morning, because we only have a limited time, to understand that this is a picture, in essence, of what God expects when those who think they have everything in the world need to understand the importance of repentance. And Jesus here speaks about what I will call this morning impossible repentance. He uses that, that word later in the passage. It's impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And he speaks about this dynamic of, of what it would take for this man, under his circumstances, to really grasp the gospel. But he really doesn't. And one of the things that captures my attention is that I would like to say, if I, if, if I were one of the disciples, I'm sure, in my own arrogance and narcissism, I would say to Jesus, you know, look, this guy, he's come to you, 
He's shown a, a significant degree of humility, like he's, you know, he's on his knees, and, and you're kind of giving him a hard time. Well, let's, let's gently bring him in, right, to the, to the kingdom. Let's encourage him. Look, he might, you know, like his tithe might make a big difference to us. And, you know, his presence and the people that he knows, his community, that would all make a great difference to us. Let's, you know, let's kind of back off here. You're kind of strong, right? I mean, we need to be a, a welcoming ministry, right? I can see one of the disciples maybe thinking that way. Almost it's reflected here in their comments, like, well, who can be part of the kingdom of heaven if these are the standards? So with that said, I want to accent three different points quickly of what I believe Jesus is communicating, what Mark is communicating here in regards to this whole dynamic of impossible repentance. The first thing that we need to understand is the significance of the word I here in this passage. Now, you may not have thought much about it. It, it doesn't hardly seem to stand out in certain ways. But if you look at the, if you look at the beginning portion of of what Mark is teaching us here in, in verse 17 of chapter 10, he accents and in quotes the man's words, good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now think about that for a moment. It sounds, again, it sounds like, well, he's just, he's just trying to figure out, you know, what he... What, what he needs to do to satisfy this kind of gnawing spiritual question that's going on in his mind. We don't know the circumstances, but something happened. He either, like, he saw a really significant movie, or he was reading the paper, or the Wall Street Journal, or New York Times, and all of a sudden he began to think about his life spiritually. Maybe he, maybe he heard a podcast and someone's testimony. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden he's thinking about spiritual things. And so he realizes, okay, I need to figure this thing out, and I need to find the expert. And he heard about Christ, and he decided, on this particular day, this particular time, I'm going to go and I'm going to ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the accent is on the I, right? Which is very easy to think about. And then, because if you tell him what he must do, then he can do the rest. It's a little bit like what I see... Uh, you know, with, with um, the YouTube and, and, you know, like, if you don't know how to fix your broken table or broken door, right, you go on YouTube and Google whatever, and it tells you exactly what you need to do. I've known of people, like, especially when they were, were hurting for work, they, they, would, uh, they would present themselves to, uh, to the community in terms of fixing, like being a fix-it man, and then they would make all these arrangements or, or have these appointments with people who have said, yeah, come and fix my door or fix my pipes or whatever, the leaky toilet. And then they know nothing about it. But the night before, they go on YouTube and they learn how to fix that particular toilet, right? And then they show up at the door with whatever they need and off they go. And, you know, which kind of works. Well, that's the kind of mindset that this man has. I, 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 can, fix, I can fix it. You just tell me what I must do to do it. But let's think about the I, right? I mean, in his case, why wouldn't he think that way? Why, why don't we think that way? In fact, we do kind of think that way. If you just show me what to do, I can fix 
my, my life spiritually because I fix everything else. Some years ago, I happened to uh, be rummaging through one of the well-known hotels in D.C., and I came across this little, little boutique men's clothing. And uh, I had some time to kill, and so I just walked in. It's, it's only about the size, half the size of this platform. It's very small. And so I asked the guy, his name is Aaron, and I asked Aaron a little bit about the, the clothes. And I knew nothing about, and some of you may know, Brioni. Do you know what it is to wear a Brioni? And I didn't know anything about Brioni suits or ties or things like that. And, and, uh, and I told him, I said, look, you know, I feel pretty good because this is a $200 sports coat, and I feel like that's, you know, a fair amount of money. And, and uh, he didn't say anything, and, and, uh, but he was very gracious. And it turned out that he, he's a believer and just a lovely guy. And so he was, he was now on the track of educating me on Brioni suits and sports coats. And so he pulled, he pulled one off, and... And uh, he was beginning to explain that where this wool comes from, you know, like in the, you know, the Caucasus uh, in Azerbaijan or, or just these exotic places. And this kind of wool is only, you know, one of, these, one of these types of areas of the world. And he goes on and on and on. And so finally I said to him, I said, would you, would you mind me, like, you know, asking, like, just how much is that sports coat? And, oh, he said, no, nope. no, he said, that's 8000 and uh, I thought, oh, 8000 that's a lot of money. And, uh, and I said, so a suit would be, yeah, like eleven or 12000 And I think, wow, you know, I didn't even know that you could buy clothes like that would be that expensive. And so then, but then I asked him the question because I thought, well, there, there has to be, maybe, maybe there's another, you know, maybe these are the ones on sale. I don't know. But, but uh, what's like, so what's your, you know, what's your top end, right? And, uh, oh, then he kind of lights up and he says, well, he said, you know, there are a lot of men, like especially in Europe and Italy, and these, the, all these clothes are made in Italy. He said, um, they, ver they like very fine clothing. And I said, okay, so what's, you know, what's the top end of a suit? Oh, well, the top end of a suit is 60000 60, And I thought to myself, I don't even want to talk. I mean, like, I don't even know. I've got to get out of this store. I'm going <laughs> to, like, trip over something, and the next thing I know, I'll be buying one of these $8,000 deals. <laughs> But I began to think, so what is it like, what would it be like for me to walk into a meeting with a $60,000 Brioni on, right? I mean, obviously, I got off my plane after spending a couple weeks, you know, in the Mediterranean on my, you know, $100 million boat, and I walk into a meeting with my $60,000 Brioni, right? Let me tell you, if you, if that's you, right, then, you're, then naturally you would say to Jesus, just show me what to do and I can fix this part of my life. And Jesus is like, well, that's not going to work. And if you notice in the passage, Jesus immediately doesn't even, doesn't even uh, directly address his question in a way, you might say, but he does. Think about what that man says. And if you were to turn back to Mark chapter 10, and you look later down, far further down in the passage, you'll see that Jesus is being confronted with, with a man who is blind. Bartimaeus is his name. We're given his name, Bartimaeus. Not just a blind man. 
And what does, what does Bartimaeus do? Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming. And he doesn't just say, Jesus, just show me what, my, what I must do in order to, be, to have this part of my life resolved. And he doesn't even address the fact that he is blind. He says, he cries out, and he says, have mercy on me. You see this, the, the, the distinction? You got one man saying, just show me what I must do. And his nice brioni. And the other man, who's a beggar, and he says to Jesus, have mercy on me. When was the last time you cried out to God like Bartimaeus, have mercy on me? So the word I, for all of us, needs to be well-defined. Secondly, we need to understand that in order to have the repentance, this impossible repentance, not only do we need to understand well who we are, the word I, the pronoun, but we need to also understand what it means to be blind. This man was blind in three different areas, right? First of all, he's standing in the presence of God. This is Jesus Christ. He thinks, he thinks he's doing the appropriate thing. I've been down this path many times where I, I thought I was saying the right things, but the context was all wrong, and I just, you know, later on I was terribly embarrassed. You've been there as well. This man doesn't see it. He is blind in the fact that he is standing in the presence of Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And the universe is amazing. But he doesn't see it. And Jesus knows he doesn't see it. Because at the very beginning, what does he say? There's no one good except God alone, and you don't recognize me as God. And so we have a problem there, right? So the issue that he is blind in terms of seeing God, but the truth of the matter is, I think for most of us as Christians, when we talk about general revelation, and let me say this, every time I'm in Oklahoma, I love the big sky that you have here. Where, where I live, I can hardly see the sky, you know, it, and I only get a little glimpse if I look a certain way out a window in, in uh, downtown Washington, or in the city of Washington, D.C., You've got this massive sky. One of the things I used to love doing is that when I would drive from Oklahoma down to Dallas uh, before the sunrise, and on my left, right, the sun would be rising, and the, the incredible picture of God's creation and the, the vivid colors that were being created, right, that would be really a reminder to anybody, but certainly to a Christian, that this world in which we live has been made it by has been made by our Creator. And you see God's hand on so many things, but we tend to be so busy and numb in a way with life that we fail to see it. Our God is a living God who speaks to us, yes, through his word, but certainly as a Christian, he speaks to us through his creation, through so much of what I call, what we call general revelation. But secondly, this man didn't see his sin. And the second thing that Jesus does to him is that not only does he, in essence, correct him in regards to only God is good, right? But then the second section of the passage goes on in terms of, well, you know the commandments. 
In other words, now let's get down to really who you are. Who are you? And Jesus lists several of them, a number of them. They're all from the second half of the Decalogue, second half of the moral law, moral law that deal with our relationship with each other. And what does the man say in response to what Jesus had, had indicated? He says, I've kept all those since I was a boy. So he's not only blind in terms of, of being in the very presence of the living God and not really understanding it, and in essence, in essence saying some really embarrassing things, but then he doesn't see him, he doesn't see his own heart. He doesn't see his own sin. And so a mark of someone who experiences this impossible repentance will see that God is real and very much present, but also will see their sin. And that creates a very different person than someone who presents themselves to the world in their $60,000 brioni. There is a humility there because you see both the presence of Almighty God and our sin and how offensive we are. And then, of course, thirdly, he didn't see the consequence of it. So if we understand what it means to experience impossible repentance, we have to understand the word I, and then secondly, how blind we are. But then thirdly, we need to understand what it means when Mark says, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And he said to him, take all of your possessions, sell, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, just to be clear, this is not Jesus saying, oh, that the only way that anybody can come to Christ is through literally exhausting all their resources so that they are now in poverty. But it does mean that if someone who is so captivated by idolatry of their possessions, that they cannot go in two different directions at the same time. And repentance, as a definition, is having a change of mind. And what Jesus is calling this man to do is, I want you to see who I am. I want you to see who you are. And I want you to see your idolatry. And you've been going in this direction, but I'm calling you now to go in this direction. And it is a work of grace. And the fact that Jesus, that Mark accents the fact that he says, and Jesus loved him and then said to him, I think is significant. I don't think we have the full picture here of what was going on in this man's life in terms of the future. What we do know is that he walked away sad. He began to get a picture of who he really was and the fact that Jesus now is speaking to him in a way that is something that he didn't really quite understand. And so to understand God's love means that, first of all, he's not going to ever allow us just to remain in our position, our comfort zone, our own sin. And he will push us to a point where we will be very uncomfortable. And it will be in different ways. For the rich young ruler, yes, it's going to be in terms of his possessions. Maybe in, for some of us, our idolatry 
is relationships. Either the pursuit of relationships or the relationships that we have, but they're not quite what we have, what we would define them to be. Or maybe it's a career path. And it's not because, again, we're, we're looking to be uh, incredibly wealthy, but we just believe that this is the right path for me. But it has become our God. It may be an educational pursuit. It may be something very simple. I know that after having been a Christian for over 50 years, that this passage continues to speak to me over and over and over again. And it speaks to me in terms of the need for repentance and experiencing God's grace within my life in a a different way today than what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or when I first came to Christ. But it continues to address my idolatry, my sense of saying, I can do it. You just, just give me some, some pointers here and I'll be okay. I believe that God wants all of us to be in a position where we're able to say, in essence, like Bartimaeus, have mercy on me. And I believe that the world, when it sees the church and those within the church, have that kind of humility, where they recognize that, yes, you may say, or you may use the term, and I'm not against this, use the term, I'm broken. But we are more than broken. In fact, I noticed, Casey, in your description of those who come to church here, that you have a line that talks about brokenness, but then the next line is you talk about rebellion. I am broken, but I am also in rebellion. And I'm also very much oriented towards my own idolatry. And I believe that if the world at large saw the people of God wrestling with their idolatry, wrestling with the fact that they wear to the world their $60,000 Briones, and that we are in need of God's grace, that it would change the way in which we view our neighbors and those who are different, those who, who have different views than we do, because we will see ourselves in need. It will change the way in which we pray for our world and our community and our neighbors and our friends and those with whom we work and those within our family and or maybe it's our spouse or our children or our parents, whoever. But we'll, we'll have a very different view because we won't, we won't be so judgmental because we'll see our own sin and our own need. And I believe also it will change the way in which our neighbors will respond to the gospel. Because they'll be around those who have embraced the gospel, who have experienced repentance by God's grace in a very different way. It's interesting that, in a way, the passage starts off with, show me what I must do to inherit eternal life. But it ends also, in a sense, with the pronoun I. But this time, not the rich young ruler, but Jesus. Come and follow me. In other words, as Jesus says in other passages, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the emphasis is 
And when we talk about the gospel on the word I, but it's not me, it's on Jesus. So my prayer is that we will experience this impossible repentance, that we'll all have a better understanding of who we are, of our blindness, but also of what God has done through Christ and his love for his glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning and this opportunity to be together and to hear your word, perhaps a passage that we've heard so many other times, we've read, we've been in Bible studies. But I pray that in a new way, you would enable us to have a, a, an appreciation for this section that we might apply it to every area of our lives, not for our sakes, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.